The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM, and we're up to episode seven already. On today's programme, biodynamic wine is booming, but how do you do it and what difference does it make to what actually ends up in your glass? Well, we're going to talk to one of its leading exponents, Peter Fraser of Australia's Yangara. Our desert island drink encompasses a whole country as Alistair Cooper, MW, chooses chilli for his island supply, and he's going to tell us why. And the perfect tonic We'll hear from the Dutch twins whose frustration turned to entrepreneurial flair as they developed their own range of mixers because they weren't happy with what was out there in the market already. Plus, our usual selection of award-winning wines and spirits hand-picked from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Sales of organic and biodynamic wine have been rocketing in recent years, with the market in the UK now estimated to be worth more than £2.5 billion. And it seems that now more than ever before, we care about the way our wines are made and the impact that process has on nature. Organic is pretty well understood, but what does being biodynamic actually entail? Well, Peter Fraser should know. He is something of a pioneer, having led the conversion of Australia's Yangara brand, first to organic and then biodynamic a decade ago. No doubt one of the factors in being made Australian Winemaker of the Year four years ago. And he joins us now from the McLaren Vale in Australia. Uh, Hello, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. Um, It's great to join you on a Friday night sitting in McLaren Vale um, with a glass of wine and end of the week. So good to talk to you about it. Well, thank you for giving up your Friday night. Uh, for those like me with a slightly shaky Australian wine geography, just paint us a picture of where you are and the conditions you're working with there. McLaren Vale is about an hour south of Adelaide. Um, Adelaide is the capital city of uh, South Australia. So we're kind of in the, the middle um, southern part of Australia. Um, relatively affected by coastal conditions and uh, you know you think of Australia as being a a dry kind of warm continent um, or island um, where on those southern parts probably a little more akin to what would be called a Mediterranean climate Um, lovely part of the world and uh, a great place to be growing grapes and you've been at Yangara for about 20 years, uh, working in a biodynamic way for almost half of that time. Um, what made you make the switch first to organic in 2008 and then to biodynamic a few years later? I think the pivotal moment was uh, my own personal interest in not using synthetic chemicals um, and, and also my interest in organic products, whether that be just produce that I used at home. Um, I also, in in part of that, my interest was sparked uh, by going to a conference that was a biodynamic conference led by um, a guy called Manfred Kleck from Germany who'd written numerous books. And uh, one of the things that he talked about that 
very much kind of excited me and he was very much talking about general agriculture but I kind of drew parallels. Um, Yangara is a single vineyard and I think one of the great things about wine is they have a, a when they're made from a single site, um, they have a great potential to, to express you know, individual characters of that site. And um, he talked about two things in that. And one was um, when you use synthetic um, or glyphosate, which is um, a herbicide, um, you're not so much uh, poisoning the soil, but you're removing the ecosystem that is very complex and plants um, uh, and it's a habitat that's created for the microbiology in the soil. And that microbiology actually kind of facilitates the uptake of the natural minerals into the plant. And, you know, you hear of terms like terroir used in wine. And if you like, in a simplistic terms, um, modern chemical farming kind of blocks um, terroir. It actually prevents the natural minerals of the soil um, being taken up by the plant and you, you're constantly adding synthetic fertilisers to keep the plant healthy. So organic farming in simply just removing synthetic uh, herbicide, you're enabling the, the plant to produce grapes that that sh, you know take up the minerals that within the soil that it grows in and then secondly the other part was he talked about um, the use of synthetic fertilizers um, primarily the the nitrogen fertilizers the diammonium phosphates and um, or ammonium phosphates and they they also kind of weaken the plant. They're kind of like us eating McDonald's every day or, or chocolate. Um, they, they basically weaken the plant. They also, they, it's kind of like fast food for them. And um, so that kind of struck a chord to me and we wanted to make wines that were expressive of the place they come from and, and including the soil that they come from. We wanted to set up the soil to be in its most natural state. So that was kind of the, the main driver of it and I wouldn't say that we kind of started as organic the first part of, of biodynamic is that you do not use synthetic chemicals and then the the second part of it is actually using um, biodynamic practices to enhance I suppose the microbiology the biodiversity of, of what you do and, and biodynamics is, is probably one of the tools that we use, but I would say that we use a lot of biological systems um, to enhance the, the health of our soil and the health of our plants. And if we take uh, the other end of the product, if you like, uh, so once you've uh, uh, sent off your wines into the world for us to enjoy them, what are we gonna notice in the glass that is different about a biodynamically produced wine? Look, I think, it's a, it's a very good question, and I don't think 
that you may see things um, incredibly obvious, and it's probably not the answer you want to hear. Um, I see wine as a, a multiplication of lots of 1% things that you do. It's a lot of attention to detail. And um, I kind of think about the, the way we farm the vineyard as, as one of those details that we do. And, and it's kind of one of those tools that we, that we help to fine tune the grape growing um, to really simply produce wines that are more expressive of their, with their, of their sense of place. So these are really small scale kind of um, impacts, but it's like anything. I kind of have again. I like using analogies. If you're a if you're an athlete, it's it's all those little things that you do that makes you great, um, and it's and it's also it's sometimes hard to pinpoint the exact thing that makes it different or makes it great. Um, so. It's definitely a very important part of what we do, and um, it feels good, and it and it also, I think, it, it gives us the other part of what I what I feel is that when you're farming like that, you're you're being very preventative. Everything you're constantly observing your vineyard. Um, you're having to be very attentive. You're maybe doing extra things like shoot thinning and leaf plucking because they're incredibly important to make sure that you've got the right airflow, the right sunlight into the bunches um, because you're not reliant on, um, I suppose the opposite of preventative is, is reactive, which means mm. that you actually um, have a problem and you fix it with a chemical. Um, and all those things add up to being what I see is is quality uh, actions that that go towards making greater wine. And you paint a picture of a very much a, a holistic approach. Um, there are aspects of what you've just described of biodynamic agriculture that makes such obvious sense. And then there are some of those things that sound a bit kind of uh, battier to, to what find for want of a better word uh, the kind of stuff like cow horns with uh, silica buried in the ground is the one that's always cited but there but there are other things that yeah. would seem strange to some people can you explain why those more unusual techniques matter yeah it's i think for us and again we use the term biodynamic um it's a term that that people are familiar with i probably prefer the words biological um because you know our ultimate goals are to increase biodiversity. Um, you know we do things. We we bring bees in in summer. We bring sheep in in the winter. Um, we're always looking at cover crops that you know increase the diversity of under vine. Um, we bring in over a thousand cubic meters of compost. Um, but biodynamics. Has a, has a part to play in that, and and there's some, you know, I could talk for a day on the the intricacies of biodynamic um, preparations, but in simplest si simple terms, um, 
uh, preparation 500 is, is cow manure um, that is put into the horn of a lactating cow, obviously detached from the cow. Um, and um, that is that is buried and and basically that manure ferments in the in the cow horn and there's very complex things if you ever look into the eye of a cow um, in this kind of biodynamic kind of things that the cow cow is a in an energy sense is a very placid creature they take in a lot of energy around them and the cow horn is a is a very impervious kind of um, vessel so theoretically it's taken in all that that energy of nature and um, but you can kind of choose to look at the complexity of it and and I'm a relatively simple thinker I see it as um, that fermentation in that cow horn is in an in inoculum um, and and so when you spray that out you're putting out thousands of um, little bacterias and fungi and um, you, you're basically putting out a, a microbiological rich inoculum but the the biodynamics talks about energy and I don't ever propose to understand it because I think it's far beyond my intellect. <laughs> wow. um, but but the reality is, is if you walk into a room, and I, I try and simplify it even for myself, if you work in, walk into a room full of, you know, with a person and that person is glum and that person is woe me and, and feeling really down, you kind of pick up on that energy. Um, versus you walk into a room with somebody that's glowing with with energy and excitement um, you pick up on it and, and you become that energy and I think there's there's things that we don't understand about energy um, that biodynamics has has tried to encapsulate and there's definitely you know when we're spraying out 500 and and doing everything right and being excited about it um, I think there's a there's a positive network, and and in amongst all that, I think there's there's kind of communication that happens between biology in the soil and plants um, that we just simply don't understand. And and if ultimately, if some of the stuff we do is maybe somewhat of a waste of time. Um, it can't hurt. It's not actually hurting anybody. It's a far better place to be in than than putting out a synthetic chemical that um, prevents um, biological activity. So well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, kind of uh, sense about it, you know. Do people expect you to be a bit of a hippie before they meet you? I would say no, um, and the reason being is that if you go onto our website. Um, you you kind of have to search to find out kind of our our views on our biodynamic farming. Um, one, we don't want to be seen as a greenwasher, um, and two, that we want to be known for producing great wine first and foremost. So for us, it's it's a part of a way of life, it's a part of way of farming, it's a tool that we use to produce 
our wine. Um, and, and we definitely don't want to be known as kind of a, a hippie that um, just is kind of taken up winemaking. Um, it's um, so, and look, I'm, it's not any discredit because I'm sure there's probably some great hippie winemakers. Um, but it's definitely yeah, it's definitely not, not us no um, well you don't very... you don't look like a hippie in the pictures i've seen either i, I have no, to say but no. uh, it's um you've been you mentioned the tools there you've been experimenting with different vessels for fermentation um is that anything to do with being biodynamic not really it kind of i think biodynamics is very much you know 90 99 about winemaking, I'm sorry, grape growing. It's about farming. Um, there's, however, <laughs> the, the, the man, like we've had a lot of success using ceramic egg um, fermentation vessels, which go back, you know, to ancient times in um, Europe where, you know, amphora were used, um, you know, ancient pots, basically, wine made in pots. Um, and we've had great success using those. And I met um, the guy that makes our, our flow forms, which we make our biodynamic preparations in, um, started making these ceramic eggs. So there were some links, but, you know, he would talk about his, he's probably much more spiritual and hippie about it than I am. He would talk about the shape of an egg being kind of part of the biological nurturing and you know it's funny although I kind of discard it I must say that fermentation or the biological activity that goes on in making wine happens more effortlessly in those ceramic vessels um, that are shaped like eggs. Wow um, interesting. Whether I could explain it or not I can't but you know it's it's the evidence is in the pudding, I suppose. Well, yeah, and I've, I've tasted your pudding. I've tasted uh, um, a, a good number <laughs> of your wines. They have a, a real sense of balance, a real um, lightness of touch, certainly relative to some of their peers, um, with particularly with the, the Shiraz. Is this all part of a, 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 philos a philosophy uh, that is sort of rooted in that biodynamic approach, or is it just the way you make wine? Um, I think it's a bit of both. Um, there's, there becomes a connection because of back to that, what I said about your proactive versus reactive. It means that you're observing what happens in the vineyard, um, more you're setting yourself up for success where you don't have to be reactive and wine making is a little bit like that too. So, you know, you're not picking too ripe where you might have fermentation issues. Um, one of the questions you asked before about, you know, the biodynamics in winemaking or using other vessels, um, in the certification process, um, we, we can only use certified um, organic products. So generally most biodynamic or organic winemakers will use wild yeast. There are some certified um, cultured yeasts, but again, it's back to our kind of philosophy. We want to use the natural yeasts. Um, again, natural yeasts probably have lower alcohol tolerance, so you're you're very conscious about when you're picking the, 
the grapes to make sure they're not, they're not too sweet. Um, you're, you become conscious of the wines um, having that lovely kind of ethereal um, airiness to them, but, but because the way you're growing them, the yields can't be too high because otherwise you might have risk of, of disease, you know, rot in the grapes. So you're getting this wonderful concentration, but you're not having to over extract them in the winery um, because you've already got all the flavour you want. So you end up with this lovely balanced um, um, wine that has a sense of kind of tension and brightness to it. And um, so it's kind of an all-encompassing circle that ends up kind of resulting in, in better results. Um, it definitely works for us anyway. Oh, it does. I mean, yes, the wines, as I say, ethereal is a good word. And I, I loved, I tasted your Roussin last year, which is absolutely fantastic as well. So um, it's great to chat to you. Really fascinating, actually. Thank you for giving up some of your Friday night. I hope you can enjoy your glass of wine now. Uh, thanks for talking to us, Peter, on The Drinking Hour. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's um, great to be able to educate people in, in some of these kind of more off the wall kind of, well, I think it's actually, you know, what people were doing 100 years ago. So it's, yeah. it's you know, lovely to, to be able to share some of these stories. Oh, well, thank you for doing so. Okay, thank you. Bye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first recommendations hand-picked from the IWSC medal winners. And let's kick off with a gin. Berry Brothers, number three, London Dry Gin, won a gold medal, with the judges describing it as pronounced, big and straightforward, cooling juniper and eucalyptus with a touch of mint, a bit of sweet roots and a long, dry finish, well-rounded with a charming, peppery note, balancing the gentle sweetness. You may remember in episode two, our gin discussion, this was Joel Harrison's favourite all-rounder gin, and that is 36 quid at waitrose.com. And an English sparkling wine from Dorset's Langham Estate, Culver Classic Cuvée, extra brute, non-vintage, won a silver with 92 points. The judges praising a sophisticated and complex example with flavours of toast, biscuit and macadamia nut, brightened with fresh lemon and sour apple notes, classic with a rich mousse. That is £27.50 at langhamwine.co.uk. And that was from the 2020 awards. I've just been judging for the 21 awards and the standard of English sparkling wine was incredibly high. So watch this space. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now it's time for our Desert Island drink, where we invite a leading professional to share with us their passion for a particular grape variety a wine, a whole region, or a spirit. Making his choice today is Master of Wine Alistair Cooper, who has chosen to pack an entire country into his bags uh, to guarantee a desert island wine supply, which sounds like a very good idea to me. Alistair, hello. Thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Great to be here. Good to chat. And you've chosen all of Chile. Why? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I thought if I can get away with a whole country, why not? Well, you know, Chile Chile's a country that means a lot to me, David. I lived there for, for several years in 2000 and 
two till 2005 um, when I first really got into wine and it's where I really got my so, um, since I lived there I think Chile's come on so much it's forged its own identity and it's continuing to do so and you know I know when you're doing this the drinking hour everyone focuses on one region everyone probably wants to lean towards Burgundy or Barolo or something like that and I think you know sometimes these countries like Chile deserve to be showcased and in the spotlight and I think you know, instead of choosing a region in Chile, some of the regions that are exciting are so young that to pick one region would be very difficult. So I've gone for a whole country. Well, it's a very good idea and it's going to get you a lot of wine as well, which is fantastic. Um, <laughs> at a great so price as well, because I think there's great value to be had in Chile. But we will come to that in a, in a moment. Um, what varieties really shine for you in Chile then? Well, I, I think this is one of the, the strong points of Chile and, and certainly Chile of, of recent years. Um, so... I think Syrah has been a, a massive success story. Um, you know, it was only planted for the first time in Chile in 1996 or 1997, around there, believe it or not, so incredibly young. And it does well in so many areas. What I love about Syrah in Chile is its diversity. It's great in, in the, the northern areas of Elqui and Limery, where it really shines. And then you've got the coastal areas of, of Leda, San Antonio, Casablanca, and even the warmer areas a little further south in Colchagua. So there's great diversity of stars from these sort of peppery, nor dare I say it, northern Rhone, violety stars to something a little bit richer. Um, and if we're thinking about France again, you know, imagine the stars down in the Languedoc. So there's bigger, bigger, warmer stars. But then we mustn't forget Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon is Chile's most planted variety um, and it really can be exceptional. Um, so probably, possibly still the finest wines from Chile are Cabernet Sauvignon based. But then we've got Pais, Sanso, Carignan, all these interesting heritage varieties. But for me, what really shines and what's going to be the star of the future is Pinot Noir. Oh, OK. Well, that, that's yeah. interesting. So you've, you've covered quite a, well, the, almost the, the whole gamut of Chile's varieties there, uh, certainly in red terms. Um, red, tell yeah. me about Pinot then. Well, you know, uh, when I lived in Chile in, as I say, back in 2003, 4, 5, I moved back to the UK. Well, I then lived in Argentina for a couple of years, but then moved back to the UK. And I remember talking to, to friends in the wine industry and they said, you know, how was Chile and Pinot Noir? And I said, uh, well, it, uh, how can I put this politely? I said, it's not very good. Um, and I really didn't, hadn't, hadn't tasted when I was in Chile any decent Pinot Noir. It was this sort of really confected style of Pinot Noir. And um, I, I really thought they were best to, to give up. Um, and how wrong I am. Here I am sort of 15 years later and I'm beginning to see some incredible potential from Pinot Noir. An area that really looks exciting is, is a place called Mayeco in the south. Um, so south of Itata and Bio Bio. Um, there's, there's a handful now of exceptionally good Pinot Noirs coming from, from that area. I've just done a big tasting uh, a couple of weeks ago and I'm really impressed. Is that, and then, you know, a little bit further north as well in, in Aconcagua. Um, I, I think Pinot Noir could potentially be a real superstar. In, in Chile. It's interesting, Richard Banfield was on uh, doing his Desert Island drinks, which was uh, Pinot Noir um, a, a few yeah. weeks ago, and he was extolling the virtues, although he was primarily talking about Burgundy, he was then extolling the virtues of, of Chile and Pinot Noir, especially for value. And, and I think that's got this, they seem to have developed uh, this style, and I'm thinking here of the of the the uh, some of the Conchi Toro wines, but they seem to have developed this style. People know exactly what they're going to get, and they love it. Yeah, I think at the, the lower end, absolutely, and 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 it's amazing how far they've come. And as I say, in, in 15 years, and the lower end style, they're very accessible. You know, to 
very few places in the world make good, affordable Pinot Noir. I was going to say cheap, but cheap's the wrong word, affordable mm -hmm. Pinot Noir. And um, as you say, it's a bit of a holy grail to, to, to find that. And I think, yes, Chile does do that very, very well. And I think actually where Chile really shines with Pinot is probably what I call mid-price for Pinot. So between 15 to 25, 15 to 30 pounds. I think that's where we're going to see Chilean Pinot really come into its own. Great. Well, I should have to get to know uh, some of those, I think. Um, you mentioned Syrah too, and yeah. that's not a variety um, I have automatically associated with Chile previously. No. Um, as I said, it's it's a relative newcomer to Chile, having been been planted for the first time in in, in 96, 97, around there, I think, by, I believe it was Vina Erasuris who were the first to, to plant it. So it's, it's a relative newcomer. Um, and it just seems to do well in so many areas, you know. Um, and it, it's got a real identity of its own. It sort of hints towards the Northern Rhone style, um, but but it can take on... Yeah, as I say, thinking thinking of France, you know, you think of Northern Rhone, I think further south, you know, as you go into the Southern Rhone, you get some of those characteristics from Colchagra as well with, with, with the Syrah you find there. So I think, yeah, I, I adore I adore Chilean Syrah and um, the coastal areas makes it really fresh style. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's surprising that um, people over here don't don't see more of it. But I think Syrah actually is a pretty hard variety to sell. Um, and I know a lot of winemakers in Chile lament the fact that it, it, it's very hard to, to sell. I don't know why, because I think it's possibly my favourite grape variety. Yeah, well, it would certainly be a contender for me too. And I had a great oh, yeah. uh, Leda uh, Syrah, not particularly expensive, really good bright fruit. And I would completely agree. It was just it was just a, a, a real joy. Um, it would be easy uh, for an outsider to assume that uh, because of the language and the history that Spanish influence would dominate the wine in Chile. But it's it's much more French, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we go back. So, so wine's been made in Chile since 1551. So there's an, an incredible amount of, of heritage, actually. It's, um, you know, it's a new world wine country. But actually, if you think about it, they've been making wine in Chile since before the the um, the Dutch drained the Medoc and, and some of the finest wines came from Bordeaux. So there's, there's, there's an incredible amount of history in Chile. And to begin with, it was Spanish varieties. It was Pais, Muscat that came from um, the, the Canary Islands uh, with, with the main varieties. But since about 1850, very much um, French dominated. Um, and, and it seems like the, the, the Chileans were keen to, to quash the sort of hangover from the colonial times and the Spanish grape varieties. And, and yeah, it very much Bordeaux was, was what was idolised by the Chilean bourgeoisie in sort of 1850s, 1860s. And, and that led to all of those yeah, mainly Bordeaux varieties coming over. So Cabernet, Merlot, Carmenere, which got lost in the vineyards, um, Semillon, Sauvignon. So yeah, very much led by um, led by the French. But um, there's been a resurgence recently looking to, you know, back towards its um, its colonial past. But yeah, absolutely, it's, it's largely French uh, grape varieties that, that have become synonymous with Chile. And Chile has, of course, one very uh, celebrated advantage over France and indeed the rest of the world, really, in that it is free of phylloxera, the, the bug that attacks the, I think, the yeah. roots of the, of the vine and, mm. and wiped out uh, uh, Europe's vines sort of more than 100 years ago. So how yeah. does that uh, fact influence the wines? 
It's a really good. It's, it's a really good question, David. And I think there's, there's, it's quite a complex question. You know, it's 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 a semi mystery in many ways why why phylloxera hasn't struck um, Chile. There are parts of Australia that haven't been struck. So I think it's the only country, um, full country, that hasn't been struck by phylloxera. Um, um, how has it affected the, the the wines? That's a really good question. I think probably it, it's important to say that. Not every vine, because of the, the lack of, of absence of phylloxera in Chile, doesn't mean that all of the vines are planted on their own rootstocks, because quite a few are on rootstocks anyway, because they do have problems with nematodes, which are these nasty little parasitic eelworms that can cause problems um, with vines. So a lot of vines in Chile are planted on rootstocks, um, but, but you know there are a considerable amount that, that aren't. Um, and I think one of the key things for me is Vines planted on their own rootstocks have the ability to age longer. It just seems that they that they, their, their energy isn't sapped as much. So one thing that many people probably don't realise about Chile is quite the amount of old vines that there are there. You know, down in the heartland of, of Itata and Bio Bio and Maule, where where the where the wine industry took off, there are vineyards down there of two to three hundred years old. Um, which is really quite staggering. And I think the key thing for me is vines on their own rootstock that aren't um, affected by phylloxera have the ability to age longer and older vines can produce interesting wines. But most importantly in Chile, they're far better equipped to deal with climatic extreme. It can deal with drought better. Um, and that is an issue in Chile. That's a real issue in Chile. Um, so I think it can lead to longevity and therefore potentially better quality due to Due to, due to for, for those reasons, but can you taste the effect of a of a of a, a vine that's planted on its own rootstock? Um, uh, difficult to say. Well, that's a very good answer because I had no idea what the answer <laughs> to that question was. So thank you for that. That's uh, that's uh, that's a master of wine speaking. If ever I uh, heard it, um, well, down, <laughs> down in the south, um, I, I was very lucky to go on a a trip uh, down to a Tata. Uh, down yeah. in obviously a very long narrow thin country a tartar yeah. everywhere you look there are trees beautiful region and i was there with uh, pedro para the uh, the terroir expert who's oh, yeah. who's celebrated around the world for his pedro pits uh, where exactly, he, he yeah, digs he's... into the soil to look at the soil that talks right. terroir really fascinating man and he, uh, yeah. he he shared some of his wines and uh, it's the first time i think i'd ever had pice and i absolutely yeah. loved it um, tell me a bit mm. more about that variety yeah well it's interesting you should mention itata because that was I, I actually did my my master of wine research paper was on on the region of itata so it was back in 2014 i tasted some pice and it really I was just so impressed with what had happened since I moved out of Chile. Pais, um, yeah, the, so the story with Pais, it was it was pretty much the first variety that came in um, with the Spanish conquistadors in 1550, 1551, around there. It came from the Canary Islands, probably via Peru, um, and it's better known as Listam Prieto um, in, in the Canary Islands. And it's, um, it, it, it's a great variety that it's, it's very prolific, so it it's a high yielding grape variety, um, and it was just it was just the red wine that they they drank for for centuries in Chile. Um, it grows well. It's good um, drought resistant. As I say, high yielding as well. Um, and it was the it was the main variety, the main red variety in Chile until the French 
in the 1850s till those French varieties came over. And then the story changed. Um, so Pais was very much maligned. Um, it wasn't a noble grape variety. As I said, they, the, the Chilean bourgeoisie admired and looked up to, to the French and specifically the Bordeaux. So poor old Pais was, um, was sort of left to wither on the vine, dare I say it. And, and many of it was, was grubbed up. Many thousands of hectares were, were grubbed up. As a grape variety, it can be absolutely fascinating. And it's really only in the last 15 years that the, the Chilean winemakers and a lot of the young winemakers, so Pedro will like this for, for, for me calling this, but I've called Pedro young. You know, the whole, the whole, there's been a massive group of, of young guys that have, have looked what's on their own doorstep and said, sugar, we've got vines that are two to 300 years old. You know, some are only a hundred, you know, baby, baby vines in, in, in Pais terms. Um, what can we make for them? And they can, you know, if you think of, you think of Chilean wines and, you know, Probably many people, David, would think, you know, Cabernet, Carmenere, these big, hefty, fruit-driven wines. Whereas Pais is very different. It's, um, you know, it's, dare I say it, more Burgundian in style. Um, more, mm. I, prob probably more on the lines of Gamay, I think, would be a fairly similar, yeah. um, you know, great variety to look at. So it's, it's, it's quite perfumed. It has this delicate rose hip. Um, quality, red currant and spice, and it can be very rustic, so they need to be very gentle with their extraction in the vineyard. And someone, a, a, a winemaker in Chile said to me, it was a, a chap called Fernando Almeida, who was for many years the, the, lead, the head winemaker of Torres, who have been key in, in, in pioneering the, the sort of modern Chilean wine industry. And he said to me, it's fascinating because Pais is the oldest grape variety in Chile, yet it's probably the one we know least about. You know, as modern winemakers, we know, we just don't know how to make it because for many years it was, it was just produced and put in Tetra Pak wines. You know, when these French varieties came in, it was, it was used for, for jug wines, for wines for the priests, you know, to use in communion. Um, and it's really only in the last 15 years that people have started to, to, to rediscover it. So it's a, it's a beautiful grape variety. Um, and yeah, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Oh yeah, I mean, it really is. Hearing the story of it, 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 it is the Cinderella grape, isn't it? Suddenly it's pace, you will go to the ball, or hopefully it is anyway. Totally. Certainly, certainly totally. in Pedro Parra's hands, uh, it will go to the ball. So I love the, the, the parallel you draw with uh, uh, Gamay uh, and, and some of the Beaujolais crews. I think it's, uh, you know, there, there are definite similarities there. Um, so uh, you're allowed to Absolutely. show off here. What's the best Chilean wine you've ever tasted? Do you know what? That's a pr <laughs> that's a really hard question to answer. So I'm going to give you two. I'm going to I'm going to give you a couple of answers, which might be. A, I'm going to give you a few answers actually. It might be a bit of a cop out to do that. That's um, all right. That's allowed. Okay, brilliant. Um, I, I, I guess you know some of the the greatest wines that I've tasted. Are, uh, in fact, all of the what I would say the greatest wines are Cabernet based. Um, I've been really impressed with some of the Alma Viva wines, which you've probably heard of, um, you know, very famous uh, wine from Chile, which had the, has the Mouton Rothschild connection. For me, the 1999 and 2011 Alma Viva stand out. Recently, um, Vina Chadwick, which is sort of part of the Erasmus stable, um, their 2014 is a very, very promising wine. Just a few weeks ago, um, actually, it's probably a couple of months ago now, I'm getting old, so time sort of passes very quickly, um, was the Don Melchor 2018, which it looks to me like a very, very impressive wine. But really, I think talking about 
the wines for me the things that have been most important with the wines that I've tasted have, have been light bulb moments have been actually a great variety we haven't even mentioned yet um a sanso from Itata um oh, and okay, uh, yeah, yeah uh, we have we haven't talked about sanso and I think that as much as pi people talk about pais and chili it's become very very um it become very trendy dare I say it. Sanso for me, Tata, and that's another thing that Pedro Parra has been, has been really key in pushing, has yeah. the potential to be a real superstar. And it was in 2013 or 14, and I tasted a, a Sanso for me, Tata, from, from a fantastic young producer called um, Leo, Leo Erazo, and he has a winery called Rogue Vine. Um, and I tasted this wine. You know, it wasn't an expensive wine, you know, 15, 20, 25 pound wine. Um, and it just stopped me in my tracks. It showed me something that was distinctly different to what we might think of, of Chilean wines. It was it was so elegant. It was it was pure, and it had such definition to it. And I think that really made me stand up and go, "Wow, okay, this is a totally different side of of Chile." And then. Uh, I've only talked about red grape varieties, I've realised. Another wine that really stood out for me was the Las Pizarras Chardonnay from Irazaris, um, which is a coastal area in the Aconcagua region. And I think the first vintage, I think it was 2015, um, might have been 16, but I, both the 2016 and 17 Las Pizarras Chardonnays absolutely blew me away and showed how good and pure Chilean Chardonnay can be as well. So I think I've, I've, I've it's been a bit of a cop-out because I've, I've given about five or six wines there, but it's very difficult to say, you know, what's the greatest wine you've ever tasted from, yeah. from Chile? No, it is a really tough question. And you're right about the, those Chardonnays too. One of the first uh, kind of wine dinners I went to as a wine journalist a few years ago, uh, we tasted those wines and it was, uh, they were a yeah, total great. revelation, real revelation. Um, yeah, it's wonderful hearing you evangelise about Chile. Uh, thanks so much uh, for coming on, Alistair. No problem. Thanks very much, David. Great to chat. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world, to judge the best in the world. It's time for our next recommendations for IWSC medal winners. And who isn't excited by the thought of an Etna Rosso? Well, this one, Cora 2018 from Torremora, a blend of Norello Mascalese and Norello Cappuccio, won a silver medal. The judges describing it as floral, clean, complex and layered, with ripe black fruits, spices, smoked meat and leather. Bitter chocolate complements firm, integrated tannins, rich, round and precise. And that is £17.69 at tannico.co.uk. To South Africa next and gold medal winner Skyfall Cabernet Sauvignon 2015 from Bartini Vineyards, which won 95 points. The judges, I think, were feeling somewhat playful when they wrote this particular tasting note. Hawthorne, Hedgerow and Heathcliff. It's me, Cathy. Complex and irresistibly smooth and supple below the rose hip. Tease me with cigar, tobacco and watch me evolve into something delicious, something divine. A Stellenbosch at its most prime. I think we have a poet there. It's a Bordeaux blend and it's £37.25 at humblegrape.co.uk. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. 
The gin boom shows no signs of slowing down and the mixer market isn't very far behind with growth of 80% in the year before the pandemic. One of the new breed of mixers driving this kind of growth is Double Dutch, the brand founded by twins Raisa and Joyce de Haas, whose love of gin turned to frustration when they were at university. Uh, due to the paucity of mixers to go with their favourite tipples. So they decided to launch one themselves, and the rest is history, as they say. And they join us now uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, hello, Joyce, and hello, Raisa. Hello. Thank hello. you for having us. Oh, thank you for being there. Um, so you started to develop your first tonic together while you were at university. Uh, why then did you decide to do that? Uh, because we always, our parents, they basically had uh, a distillery in the house where we grew up in. And it was a bit of their hobby. They used that alcohol license to also import wines and champagnes. And then every last Friday of the month, they organized lots of like uh, tastings about chains and vodkas and Chapeys and wines, and so we kind of grew up knowing a lot about different types of spirits, build up a very big passion about really quality drinks, but then just realized there's so many amazing different types of spirits, and there's a whole premiumization. The choice of mixers are so much lacking behind. Uh, it's quite boring. You have a premium version of the standard mixers that have been in the market for the past five, 50 years. Uh, but that's basically it. There wasn't really any innovation. So then we started making our own soda waters for our friends during university. Um, and from there, we just always experimented with different types of flavors. And um, yeah, our friends always called us the Tonic Twins. And then we graduated. We moved to London uh, to do second master at UCL. And it was really here that we saw that we saw that the whole gin and tonic hype was even more booming there. The entree and the bar scene is so amazing here in London. The choice of mixes was basically as limited as back home. So then we decided to devote our year at university about the whole gin and tonic industry and the fact that spirits are becoming much more experimental. The choice of mixers are really lacking behind. And then we graduated and we got an award for best business plan of the year. And with that, our university gave us our initial investment. So we then used that money to produce our first two flavors which were uh, our cucumber watermelon and our pomegranate and basil. So that was back in 2015. And um, yeah, rest is history. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, your parents sound very cool, actually, I have to say. Um, how <laughs> on earth do you go about making something like a tonic or a mixer? <laughs> um, first of all, it's uh, lots of tasting, <laughs> which is the good part. Um, but we, all our recipes are based on molecular pairings. So we basically always start with, so all our flavors are also double flavored. So we do, for example, cucumber, watermelon, pomegranate and basil. But in our Indian tonic, for example, we use a hint of juniper berries and grapefruit. And basically how we start is we always start with one ingredient, for example, basil. And from there on, we kind of look at the molecules and kind of aromas, which make basil taste and smell to what basil is. And the idea behind molecular pairings is that you pair two ingredients that share at least three of the same key aroma. So that's how we come to pomegranate and basil or juniper berries and grapefruit and kind of that's kind of our starting point. And uh, then, they are really delicious. I have to say I've, I've tasted uh, most of your um, your product range. Um, but um, how do you choose those those flavors? Uh, because you're using certainly tastes like you're using a lot of natural ingredients there. Yeah, definitely. So quality of ingredients is obviously number one. It's super key. We look at, our starting point is always, we look at market trends, see where's the 
where, where, what are consumers looking for? We try to get inspiration from food, from restaurants, but also from like traveling. And then we start with one ingredient and then uh, the molecular pairing gets in. We see what other ingredient would re work well with, for example, cranberry. Um, and then we go and finally we use brokers that find us the best forms all over the world that can give us the highest quality ingredients. And what makes a good mixer in your opinions then? Uh, I think ingredients are most important, quality of water, and I think versatility and not being too overpowering. Uh, I think a mixer that really brings the flavor of the spirit to the front and doesn't... I think being a mixer, it's all about lifting the spirits up um, and not being kind of shining on its own. In your tonic, you don't use uh, quinine, do you? Why is that? Because we normally think of tonic having quinine. Yes, indeed. So we use in our flavored mixers, we don't use quinine. Um, again, because on the one hand side, um, I think flavorful tonic waters uh, can can sometimes, we really wanted to bring the, the flavor of the spirit to the front. So having too bitter of a tonic, I think it does overpower the gin. But in our normal Indian tonic and our light tonic, we do use quinine. Uh, it's actually a legally requirement ingredient to be able to call your tonic water an Indian tonic water. Uh, so we do oh, use quinine, okay. but we kind of level it out with a hint of grapefruit and juniper berry. So it uh, might taste a little bit less bitter than, for example, other tonic waters. And there's a massive choice of uh, new mixers in the market now, thanks to, to people like you uh, bringing about this, this explosion in choice. If a consumer is struggling to make a, a decision about a mixer, what advice would you give them? Um, I think it's amazing that there's so many new uh, players in the market and we're offering altogether so much more choice to consumers. I think consumers are being, getting more educated because of the um, massive offering that they have. I think my tip would be to be open for exploration. You can't really do anything wrong with a tonic water, you just need to try it, taste it and test it and have many gin and tonics. <laughs> but That's a good idea. <laughs> exactly. Have a, just have a look at what is your, what do you really, what kind of spirits do you really like? Is it a rum? Go for like warmer flavors like cranberry, like ginger flavors. Or do you like, uh, for example, fruity gins? Do you like your pink gins, more dry gins? And just try and balance that out with the tonic flavors. So I think, for example, uh, like navy strength gins, high ABV gins goes, go really well with, for example, more of a like a skinny tonic versus an Indian tonic. Um, pomegranate basil goes really well with, for example, tequilas. So I think it's just really trying out. Mediterranean flavors go really well with like herbal gins. So I think it's all about exploration, trying, trying different flavor combinations. And I'm sure you'll find the best fit um, that you really like. So do you both have a favorite combination of drink and mixer? <laughs> That's like choosing between your own, own children. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, one of my favorite uh, drinks at the moment is kind of a really herbaceous, spicy gins uh, with our pomegranate and basil. I think we just launched our cocktail soda range. So we launched a Bloody Mary soda and a margarita cucumber soda. So at the moment, I'm absolutely loving uh, a whiskey, actually, with a Bloody Mary soda. Oh, that's a good idea. I love that Bloody Mary soda. I think it's really innovative. I've not seen anything uh, quite like that before. Uh, the, the brand is building up awareness pretty rapidly. Uh, what is next? Um, I think for us, it's on the one hand side, 
new product development that's just one of our core um core responsibilities we want to keep on innovating seeing what is interesting in the market we work with limited editions to work with seasonal uh, ingredients then on the other hand where we used 2020 with covid really to become um to become and grow the company in the right way so we're now becoming 100 carbon neutral by end of this year we're reducing our plastic and really doing that side of the business and then um next to that obviously keep on growing getting really key distribution in our key markets we're launching in the us um in a couple of months time so there's lots of exciting things going on it's incredible uh, that it was born of a frustration at university and it has so rapidly turned into this. It's a, it's a really inspiring story. Um, Raisa and Joyce, thank you both uh, very much for talking to us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you so much for having us. It was very fun. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And there's just time for our final recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. Our Roubaix Selection de Familia 2017 won a gold medal with 95 points. The judges praising plush aromas of Black Forest Gasso on the nose, harmoniously full-bodied on the palates with opulent flavours of chocolate and ripe blackberries that conclude with a big roving finish. Charmingly well made, it would complement any special meal. And that is £24.95 at slurp.co.uk. And here is a silver medal winning whisky. Orkentoshan Three Wood Single Malt Scotch Whisky from the Lowlands of Scotland, matured initially in bourbon casks before being finished in Oloroso, then Pedro Jimenez barrels, won 92 points. The judges saying rich and fruity with peaches in syrup, dried fruits and hints of gorse flowers, honeyed mouthfeel with some rye-like spiciness. Sounds delicious. And it's £48.75 at whiskeyexchange.com. And that's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. If you liked what you heard, please do tune in again next time. If you're listening via iTunes, uh, this is the uh, begging bit. Uh, We'd be very grateful, uh, almost pathetically so, if you would give us a five-star rating, as that really helps. You can contact us on email at thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com or do follow us on Instagram and Twitter at foodfmradio. And I'm at Mr. Venusaurus on both Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.